This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This is episode 648. We've got a great show. We've got Eugenia Mirica, Franco Safe, and Joe Spurgeon. We're going to talk a lot about sampling surface char and residential properties impacted by wildfire smoke, a hot topic. It's been a hot topic. There were actually three good articles in the uh, links and interesting articles section of today's show announcement. So check them out when you get a chance. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing IAQ Radio. And don't forget, afterthoughts.iaqradio.com for more continuing conversation after the show. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association, restorationindustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, iicrc.org, Healthy Buildings America 2021, hb2021-america.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, aemlinc.com, Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. SunbeltRentals.com. April Air. April AIRE.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine. HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Bruce White, Aerobiology Labs, Fountain Valley, California, who was first to identify Hurricane Katrina as the hurricane which was most destructive to the United States. The IAQ Radio Trivia question for today, December 10, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigation business at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ Trivia question. According to EPA 2014 semicolon US EPA 2016 name the sampling method where several samples are physically mixed together into a larger sample back to you Joe all right so our first we've got three guests I want to do short bios on each Eugenia Mirica is the laboratory director of material science lab at EMSL analytical in Cinnamonson New Jersey she earned her doctoral degree in material science from the C- Stevens Institute of Technology Cliff Okay, um, Franco Safe is President and Chief Executive Officer of Clark Safe Clark, Inc. 
1996, Mr. Safe joined forces with Brian Clark and Robert Clark to form Clark Safe Clark. Mr. Safe holds a bachelor's degree in civil engineering from Northwestern University in Boston, Massachusetts, and a master's of science degree in engineering management from Drexler University in Philadelphia, PA. He holds a professional engineering registration in the state of California. And Dr. Joe Spurgeon has a multidisciplinary doctorate degree in analytical chemistry and environmental health from the University of Pittsburgh, hail to Pitt, and was a certified industrial hygienist from 93 to 2013. His career has included working as a research chemist on the NBS lead paint poisoning program. He directed the FAA's combustion toxicology laboratory, some real good experience for this particular topic. Um, he was also the health, he performed health assessments for the CDC and he worked at the US EPA's laboratory exposure and assessment project and has worked for many years as a consultant specializing in microbial indoor air quality for the United States Public Health Service. Let's start with Franco Safe. Uh, Franco, what I understand, um, you're being out west, you probably deal a lot with the wildfire issue. Your company probably deals with it. And uh, so if, if you can maybe start out by giving us an idea of how you started doing this research, how you got connected with uh, Joe and Dr. Mirka, and then give us a little idea on what we're going to talk about today. Uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, we started doing uh, wildfire site assessments about 15, 15 years ago uh, in our Arizona office. And... Uh, Initially, we, uh, we uh, used what everybody else used in the industry, the cam sponge, to assess whether a surface had been impacted by fire. Uh, then at one point, we realized that we are not getting any, uh, any results wiping walls with, with cam sponges, but we could see all the debris uh, in and around the, a, a property. And that's how we uh, got together uh, as a company and decided to start analyzing the, um, those surfaces um, uh, using, uh, you know, uh, surface uh, sampling techniques. Uh, we experimented with many. We got with the Dr. Mirica at EMSL, and we developed a, a process which was uh, collecting our samples uh, using uh, wet wipes and micro vacuum and having them analyzed. Uh, how we got with Dr. Spurgeon, I've known Dr. Spurgeon for a long time. Uh, everybody in the industry knows uh, Dr. Spurgeon. And uh, uh, to, to put the study together, I needed help in the statistical analysis part, and I knew he was strong in that department, and uh, we collaborated and uh, had our study published, uh, peer-reviewed and published, and of course, Dr. Mirica, we've uh, known EMSL for a long time, and uh, uh, like I said earlier, she helped us uh, put uh, together a, a way of identifying the particles uh, and taking them to a higher magnification using electron microscopy instead of just uh, light microscopy. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and have you put up the, the PowerPoint presentation and start walking us and our listeners, our audience, through this program. Sounds good. Uh, so uh, in this study, which was peer-reviewed and published, uh, we compared the, the performance of uh, the use of wet wipe and tape lift uh, sampling methods. Uh, as, we, uh, as we all know in the industry, uh, there are many ways to sample a surface, collect samples on a surface. Uh, in this one, we only focused on uh, the use of a tape lift and wipe uh, technique. And of course, we made an assumption uh, 
that the choice of sampling may impact the evaluation of uh, of uh, of a surface uh, depending on the uh, on the methodology used uh, to collect the sample. Uh, so, in the, so, so practically, the study is to compare the use of tape lift sampling uh, versus uh, uh, collecting the sample using a white, white, uh, wet wipe. And the surfaces that were included in this study uh, were the interior windowsills of a residential property and the interior hard surface of a residential property. So we uh, sampled 48 houses. Uh, that were potentially impacted by one of five wildfires, uh, mostly here in Southern California. And the elapsed time between the sampling and the, uh, and maybe the end of the fire ranged from 90 to 120 days. And the distance uh, of a residence ranged from uh, one, less than one mile to about 15 miles from the wildfire. Uh, like I stated earlier, we used the tape lift, and the tape lift that we used in this uh, study uh, was the forensic uh, BVDA tape lift, which is uh, a little bit bigger than your Scotch tape or your uh, Triple M uh, uh, or M3 uh, uh, tape lift that most uh, uh, consultants use. And we used the one by one inch uh, wet wipe. Uh, the samples were collected side by side, um, and then they were composited in the lab. The total number of samples in the study were 192 samples. Uh, so we have 48 houses, about four, uh, four samples uh, per house adds up to 192 samples. And uh, so we collected uh, 48 tape lift samples and 48 wipe samples, for example, on the interior windowsill and the same thing um, on the interior hard surfaces, 48 tape lift and 48 wipe samples. Uh, some of the surfaces there that were included in the uh, in the sampling, like tables and baseboard and floors and furniture, uh, hard surface furniture that you would see or, and, or you would find uh, in a residential property. Frank, can I interrupt real quick? I just want to make sure I'm clarified on um, you composited the samples. Were there two composited groups? The, the ones that were done with the tape lift and the ones that were done with the wet wipe? Yes, uh, so um, I was going to get into that. So, for example, if we're doing a, 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 a windowsill, we will collect, uh, let's say, three to five wipes using individual wipes on three to five uh, different windowsills at a residence. And the same thing with the tape lift, we will uh, use uh, right next to the location where we collected the wipe sample, we will place the, the uh, tape lift and move it from, you know, uh, three to five surfaces inside of that, that same residence on, uh, let's say on, on the interior windowsill. That's okay. what I meant by composite. And when those samples get to the lab, then you, I think Eugenia will uh, have a lot of explanations on how, how everything is analyzed and done uh, in her presentation. And I have here sample analysis. Maybe it's not fair, but uh, Eugenia is going to get into it here later. But, uh, you know, uh, the reason I will just focus here on the fact that, uh, you know, uh, most of the samples, I would say all of them didn't have soot or ash, whether it was wet wipe or the, uh, or the tape lift, um, we were not finding much soot or ash. And if we found any, it would be less than 1% and, and very little number of samples. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's why in the study, we just focused on the use of char. 
and, and comparing both, uh, both analysis. So what were the results? Um, in the parameter uh, windowsills, we didn't find uh, much difference in the data or in the results between the wet wipe or the uh, tape lift uh, samples. Uh, as you, if you look at this, at this uh, graph in front of you, this bar at chart in front of you, you will notice that maybe on the numbers, uh, sample number 16, uh, you know, where the wet wipe was a little bit, it was higher than the tape lift, but the rest of the samples, 23 samples that had uh, uh, results of 1% or more, um, that all the samples were practiced, all the results were equivalent. Um, what does this tell us? Uh, you know, it tells us, uh, you know, uh, Practically, the, the preparation of a white sample of, the, of a white sample in the in the lab using you know the the sonication and the filtration of, of the sample uh, debris uh, does not really uh, change or or affect the the results. Uh, so we are getting the same results, white white or or tape lift. So the sample preparation in the lab here for the wet white. Uh, does not really uh, change the uh, the content of the sample. Now, the uh, sharing with you the interior uh, hard surface results. Uh, out of the forty eight houses, we had eighteen houses that had uh, results of one percent or greater. And uh, as you see there on the on the screen, the tape lift uh, substantially underestimated the percent char in eleven of the hard surfaces uh, inside of the house, or about sixty one percent of these samples. And you can see there in the in the bar in the bar chart in front of you that the wet wipe uh, results uh, are much higher in most of the samples than the uh, than the tape lift um, than the tape lift results. Uh, what does that mean and why? You know, we of course uh, we we discussed this a bit amongst us, uh, especially between Joe and I and. And we think maybe the uh, the the windowsill surfaces in most of the homes are uh, are homogeneous kind of the surface whether it's smooth or rough or whatever we are getting we are sampling almost the same uh, surface type in all of the homes and that's why probably the results of the uh, of this uh, windowsill sample were equivalent between the uh, the hard, the use of wet wipe or tape lift. While inside of its surfaces in interior homes, a table surface in one house may be different than a table table surface surface in another house, uh, and maybe that's why the tape lift was not picking up or enough debris, or uh, because of all these different surfaces that were sampled in the interior of a home. Uh, tabulated sir, tabulated results. You could see here uh, the this, uh, the first two the, the second and the third column uh, where it says windows on top and then wipe and tape. You see that the results uh, were practically uh, the same between the uh, wet wipe and the tape lift. But if you move to the last two columns, uh, it says interiors on top, wipe and tape. Uh, we see that um, you know when when it was less than one percent, the samples were equivalent between one and two percent. The interior sample um, uh, uh, using a tape lift have slightly higher uh, positives in it. But when we go to the higher concentrations from 5% and above, uh, we see that the interior white samples uh, uh, have much more uh, positive results than, uh, than using the tape lift. 
this may look like it's the same slide, but you know, just to, to share with you some percentages here, percent char of 5% or greater for 25% of the wet wipe samples compared to just 6% in the, in the tape lift samples. And um, on the other hand, uh, you know, the uh, one to 2% um, uh, showed 10% of the wipe samples uh, compared to 23% of the tape lift samples. Hmm. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, there are different methods to do, uh, to do this, uh, to collect surfaces, uh, to collect samples on, the, on surfaces. Uh, maybe if you want to use, uh, if you're sampling an interior windowsill, maybe it doesn't make a difference which method you use, whether tape lift or, or wet, wet wipe sample. But if you want to sample an interior, interior surfaces, maybe in this study showed that the white sampling was, was more effective and it showed uh, more positive results. And these are suggestions, of course. <laughs> uh, so in conclusion, we uh, eliminated the soot and ash from this analysis because we didn't find any in the 192 samples that, we were, that were collected. Uh, sample preparation of the wet wipe sample uh, by the lab did not affect the concentration of char as we had shown in the results uh, when we compared the interior windowsills, the wet white and the tape lift samples were the same. And uh, the background char was less than 1%. 63% of the samples showed less than 1% um, on the wet wipe and 71% of the tape lift samples, samples showed less than uh, 1%. So we assume here, or we are pretty confident that the background levels uh, of char uh, is less than 1%. And final conclusion, and this is my last slide, uh, the wipe sampling method detected higher levels of char and higher percentages of homes uh, on the interior samples. And uh, the wet wipe sampling method, uh, method was um, uh, less effective I'm sorry, the wet wipe sampling method was no less effective than the use of a tape lift for detecting char essentially on the interior windowsills. And, uh, and uh, you know, you may have an advantage uh, for evaluating the impact of char when sampling interior, sam interior uh, hard surfaces. Uh, I'm sorry, you, you have advantage using the wet wipe uh, when uh, trying to sample for char and the interior uh, hard surfaces. And with that, I conclude my presentation, Joe. I, uh, uh, Let me ask you a quick question or two here, Franco. Um, first, for those of us and, and our audience that aren't as you know uh, knowledgeable about fire and, and wildfire smoke as you and the other presenters, is someone or can you tell us the difference between char, soot, and ash? Like in morphology, or well, the you know the, the no, char. No, the, the difference between what. You know, how do we define those three terms when it comes to wildfire or, or smoke damage, you know, fire damage in general? Well, a piece of char is a, uh, is, uh, is a piece of wood that's not completely combusted or pulverized down to, a, uh, to higher temperatures than a piece of uh, ash. Ash uh, is, uh, you know, if you look at it in a fireplace, you see a lot of ash. Uh, that means the, uh, the, the wood had been exposed to very high temperature that it became ash. But pieces of char are pieces of burnt wood that hasn't pulverized down to ash. Maybe the temperature that they were exposed to is not as high as ash. And then, uh, of course, soot is a, is a 
product that's it's a chemical product a product it's um it's carbon based you know organic and uh, it's generated from the burnt of uh, you know plastics or any type of chemicals and i know dr america will get into uh, and will give a better definitions and more technical definitions than the one i'm uh, i'm given right now no, that's fine. I think we don't need real technical right now. We just need to kind of be able to visualize, okay, what what are you looking at here? You know, soot, char, and ash, and why did you choose char as the one that was most important for this particular type of uh, research? Because we didn't find any any ash or, or soot in the samples. Okay. All right. And, and real quick, I assume, and I don't, you know, I always look bad when I assume things, um, the reason you chose windowsills and then other interior surfaces was that it would be pretty common for uh, wildfires to, you know, when, when the smoke and, and the, the byproducts of the combustion enter the home, that would be a real common area that your company would have looked in the past for signs of uh, impact. We used uh, we wanted to, uh, to we wanted to uh, sample surfaces inside of a home because that's where people live and the, and the concern would be for the health and safety of residences uh, you know for that reason we wanted to do the study and focus on the interior of homes and not for say on the exterior or attic spaces or uh, anywhere else. Okay. And I think Joe will go into more detail on that when we get to his section here right after the break. We're going to oh, wait, stop. I've, 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 got go ahead. I've got one actually from a listener. Uh, Franco, can you specify that the hard surface testing was done on horizontal surfaces only, or did you also do vertical surfaces? Good question. Just, uh, uh, just horizontal surfaces. Okay. Good enough. Cliff, anything else you'd like to add? That's it. I think maybe if you could, Cliff, maybe real quick, I know you and Joe both are working on standards related to wildfire smoke. What, what do you think this is so important? Well, well there, there's two different issues. Well, there's two different standards. You know, one is internal fires, and I think they're dramatically different than wildfires, which, uh, you know, affect vast areas, large numbers of buildings, and, and so on and so forth. So I think they're dramatically different. And I, I think that accuracy in testing is really, really important. You know, if you're a homeowner uh, and you have damage to your property and you have insurance, you're entitled to having this fixed and having this repaired. So I think that the fact that the wet sampling uh, is more accurate and you know, finds it in situations where tape lift doesn't, uh, you know, pretty much answers the question from a policyholder standpoint. Uh, uh, they're going to be able to find it perhaps when other types of sampling methods wouldn't find it. So I think it's I think it's real important. But I think the sampling for the two types of flyers is somewhat different. So the bottom line is millions and millions of dollars could be, you know, uh, could be at risk here, or could be better spent, or you'd have at least a better idea of what actually was going on in that building. And this hasn't been looked at in the past, I don't believe. But John, I'm sure you could help us with that. I don't think it's been looked at as accurately as this is. I mean, you either have damage or you don't. And I think think the situation is this is uh, probably the first method that's going to uh, determine it. And also this, you know, this combination of sampling, I think, is unique as well, which I know that Joe's going to talk about 
later. You know, it's not a new sampling method methodology. It's been used in other types of industries for a long time, but I, and I know he's going to cover it. All right. Well, let's stop and thank our sponsors. We're a little early for halftime, but what we want to do is make sure we give Joe a, a solid spot here right after halftime. We'll be back in two minutes with the second half of our show today. We're talking about wildfire um, surface char in residential properties impacted by wildfire smoke. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the restoration industry association the granddaddy of the restoration industry restorationindustry.org the iicrc a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org healthy buildings america Honolulu, Hawaii, January 18 through 20, 2022. HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee. AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particles Plus. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring. GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals, availability, reliability, and ease. For all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, aprilaire.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview. Let's get Dr. Joe Spurgeon on. One of our favorite guests from uh, many years going by here. Joe, great to see you back. Before you. Um, before you start your presentation, do you want to clarify anything based on, you know, sometimes Cliff and I may overstep our evaluation of what was told to us here. So I want to give you a shot to jump in. No, I think Franco did a good job of uh, covering the, uh, the initial uh, study. Sure. Okay. Well, let's go to, the, uh, to your slide presentation and get a little more detail here. Okay, I'm going to be talking about uh, characterization of wildfire smoke residues. And uh, before we start, let me apologize. This is a brief selection of slides from a more extensive uh, Siri webinar we recently gave. So it's going to come across as rather chopped up, I'm afraid. But it's just the highlights from a, a more extensive presentation. 
No problem. By the way, this was published in uh, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute's journal, I believe their last edition. Well, the first what Frankel presented was this, what I'm presenting has just been submitted for review and hopefully will be published. Okay. But what Thank I'm you, Joe. Talking uh, about are uh, the frequency of detecting uh, char, ash, and soot, the effects of distance from the wildfire and elapsed time uh, between the inspection and the wildfire, background concentrations of char, composite samples and sample size, sampling locations, and conditional areas. So a lot of it is just a little bit more detailed uh, from what Frankel presented. Uh, the meat of the presentation is in sampling locations and conditional areas. So in this study, uh, 2058 uh, wet wipe samples were collected. They were analyzed for char, ash, and soot. They were uh, composites of three to five individual samples, just like in the uh, first study. The samples were collected from 343 uh, houses affected by one of 22 different wildfires over a four-year period. And the sampling locations included exteriors, attics, interior window sills, interior hard surfaces, return plenums, and clothing. So discussing frequency of detection, uh, again, out of the 2058 samples, char was detected in 368 or approximately 18% of the samples. Ash was detected in 37, or just under 2% of the samples. And soot was detected in 4, or just about 0.2% of the samples. So given this distribution, we focused on char as being suitable for evaluating impact. Uh, we didn't think there was enough samples detected of ash or soot to be suitable for uh, using uh, for assessment. Looking at the individual sampling locations, 40% of the window sills were positive for uh, char. And when I say positive, I mean a concentration of 1% or more of the wildfire residue was detected. <clears throat> a similar percentage on exterior surfaces, interior surfaces, uh, interior hard surfaces, 14%. About 4% of return plenums and less than 2% of clothing had positive percent char. If you combine the uh, percentages for window sills and interior hard surfaces, then about 43% of the 343 houses had positive percent char samples for interior surfaces. The conclusion was that char was the only residue that was useful for evaluating impact of wildfire smoke residues. Uh, neither ash nor soot were considered useful due to the low frequency of detection. And again, this is uh, wildfires are a little bit different than house fires. Uh, soot and char, I mean, ash and soot are just not detected that frequently. And again, we're going to be jumping between uh, topics very quickly. These are just highlight slides from a, a more extensive presentation. But this is the effective distance on exterior surfaces. Uh, what we have are the low, high, and average concentrations at various distances between 1 and 30 miles. 
And as you can see, uh, not surprisingly, peak concentrations tended to decrease with distance. However, if you look at the average concentration, there was no association between the average percent char and distance from the wildfire for exterior surfaces. If you look at interior windowsills, kind of the same pattern. In general, peak concentrations decreased with distance, but the average percent, uh, average percent char, there was no association with distance in the range of one to 30 miles. However, if you look at this table, this is the detection of char by distance from the wildfire for four different sampling locations. And it gives the percent of positive samples that were detected within one mile, within two miles, and then the cumulative percentage for both one and two miles. So if you look at exterior surfaces, 83% of all the positive samples for char on exterior surfaces were collected within two miles of the wildfire. 90% for attics, 72% for interior windowsills, 78% for interior hard surfaces. So in general, 75% of interior char and 83% of exterior char was detected within two miles of the wildfire. All right, talking about elapsed time between the wildfire and the date of the inspection, not surprisingly, the measured percent char decreased with time during the first 300 days. I don't think that's too surprising. Uh, the only point I would like to make here is that the elapsed time between the wildfire and the inspection should be considered when we're estimating initial conditions. So if you're collecting your sample 300 days post wildfire, just be aware that the typical char concentrations were probably higher initially than they are when you measured it. And that's just a factor to consider. All right, background percent char. If you look at the top table, uh, those samples with less than 1% char and the four sampling locations, 62% of the samples from exterior surfaces was less than 1% char, 91% of the attic samples, 60% of the windowsill samples, and 86% of the interior uh, hard surface samples were less than 1% char. If we look at houses themselves, 144 of the 343 houses had no samples from any of the six sampling locations with more than 1% char. So 42% of the houses had all samples with less than 1% char. So there are no consensus guidelines for background concentrations of wildfire smoke residues. However, the background concentration of char was less than 1% in the 63% of the 48 houses and in 42% of the 343 houses for wet wipe samples. One point I would like to make is that the houses included in this sample were not selected randomly from the general housing stock. 
they were all potentially exposed to wildfire plumes. So the background concentrations of char were expected to be higher than in the general housing stock, not lower. Therefore, quote unquote, less than 1% char was a rational definition of background char in these two studies. Jumping to composite samples and sample size, this table indicates the number of sampling locations where positive samples, positive char samples were detected. For example, one of the six sampling locations was positive char in 95 houses or 28% of the 343 houses. Positive char samples were detected in either one or two sampling locations in 45% of the houses. It's not too surprising to say that the more you sample, the better the chance you have of detecting what you're looking for. I think that's common sense. The thing is that sampling multiple locations increases our chance of detecting char, and each composite sample that was collected represented three to five sampling locations. So that composite samples were useful because they allowed multiple locations to be sampled cost-effectively. All right, sampling locations. Uh, this just gives the average percent char for each of the six sampling locations. For example, exterior surfaces in general had an average percent char of 23%. If you look at uh, hard surfaces and interior windowsills, 8 to 12%, with an average of about 10%. So again, it's kind of uh, not too surprising to find out that the average percent char on exterior surfaces was about twice the average for interior surfaces, 20% versus 10%. Hmm. I don't think that's a surprising uh, result. Now I'm going to get uh, switch gears a little bit and start talking about conditional areas. Uh, many of you may be familiar with the ICRC standard S520 for mold. Uh, they talk about conditional areas in that standard. Condition one is unaffected areas or normal conditions. Condition two are areas affected by settled mold spores. Condition three are areas subject to mold growth. In this following section, what I'm going to be asking is if the same concept, conditional areas, which I'm going to refer to as residue impact areas, is useful and maybe even necessary for wildfire inspections. So this table gives us the differences in percent char between interior windowsills and hard surfaces for a given house. So in 43 houses, the difference between the percent char on the windowsill and the hard surface was 1% or less. So that's 30% of the houses. However, in 16 houses, 11% of the samples the difference was greater than 
So from this table, the conclusion was that we should use caution when evaluating percent char, that is evaluating the residue impact by sampling just a limited number of sampling locations because 41% of the samples had a difference of 5% or greater for the samples in this table. So looking at those data and some other data from exterior samples, et cetera, what I looked at was 149 houses in which char was detected on interior windowsills or interior hard surfaces. And what I asked was, could we predict percent char, for example, on hard surfaces by sampling windowsills? And if we could, something called the R value uh, should be at least maybe 0.9 or higher to make me comfortable doing that. However, the R value was 0.23, way below 0.9. So my conclusion was, no, you cannot. And I looked at various um, combinations, and the highest R value we had was 0.37. So all the R values were low, well below 0.9. And I think this is a very important result. And what it tells us is that we could not use percent char from one sampling location to evaluate the impact of char for other sampling locations, that the six sampling locations were each a separate conditional area, and that each sampling location was an independent residue impact area. I think this is one of the most important slides that I'm going to present and it indicates to me that the concept of conditional areas is not only useful, but may be necessary in wildfire investigations. This slide gives us the range of percent char for the 199 houses that were impacted by uh, wildfire residues. And I separated the first two columns are for exteriors and attics. And the point I'm trying to make there is that if you look at the concentrations of percent char, uh, the left-hand column gives a distribution of concentrations, uh, 1 to 2%, 3 to 5%, 5 to 10%, and greater than 10%. So exteriors and attics were all concentrated at the higher percent char concentrations. If you look at the interior samples, interior windowsills, interior hard surfaces, we had a concentration of percent char at one to two percent. We didn't have very much at three to ten percent. We had another concentration at greater than ten percent. So if we average together the results for the interior samples, what we get is that 56 percent of the interior samples were either one or two percent char 13% were 3 to 10% char, and 28% were greater than 10% char. If we combine those ranges with the previous information that 42% of the houses were less than 1% char in all the samples, we can summarize those data into four conditional areas. 
or residue impact areas of one through four based on the indicated ranges of percent char. However, conditional areas, and again, I'm, this may be hard to follow because we're leaving out a lot of explanatory sides from the webinar, but these are the highlights. Conditional areas may be defined differently in the inspection and restoration phases because inspections and restorations have different objectives. For example, we sample interior windowsills and interior hard surfaces, but generally speaking, we restore living rooms and dining rooms. So what we have to do is take the results for each residue impact area, each conditional area, and summarize them to define what we could call similar restoration areas in the restoration work plan. In this study, Franco may not have realized it, but sampling locations were defined as residue impact areas or conditional areas. And we can define those based on percent char. And we can use those to summarize them into similar restoration areas, maybe one through four, with impacts from none to heavy, with associated restoration work plan uh, activities. And the SRAs can also not only be based on sample results, but the rest of the initial inspection, visual inspection, order detection, etc. So this gives kind of a protocol and an approach. How do we deal with the concept that you cannot sample a windowsill and understand what's going on with the hard surfaces? This gives us an approach to deal with that. <laughs> All right, in summary, uh, the wet sampling method detected higher levels of char and then a higher percentage of houses compared the tape lift method, summarizing a little bit of what Franco gave. Collecting composite samples was a reasonable methodology for sampling a large number of surfaces at a reasonable cost. Samples or sample results are typically composited for assessment either prior to or following analysis. We typically don't assess individual sample results. We average them together. So most of us are either going to composite the sample or we're going to average the sample results. It's the same effect. It just depends on how much we want to charge our client. Char was the only wildfire smoke residue that was useful for evaluating impact since ash and soot were not detected with sufficient frequency to be useful. 63% of the 48 houses and 42% of the 343 houses had a percent char of quote unquote less than 1%, which was a reasonable definition of background concentration in the two studies. And finally, the concept of conditional areas was useful even necessary for properly evaluating the impact of wildfire smoke residues in the inspection of the 343 houses. 
percent char was not correlated between sampling locations, which were in effect defined as conditional areas, and each sampling location was an independent conditional area. And with that, uh, I will stop my presentation. That completes it. Thank you, Joe. Very much appreciated. All right, let's move on. Uh, Eugenia Mirica. Hello, Eugenia. Hello. Hey, welcome. It's great to have you. John, let's uh, focus on her. And I think John's going to control the slides for your section on the analysis of these samples. That is true. So, um, Franco mentioned the type of tape lifts, the instant lifters that were used for the study. And I want to show them to you for the size. So they look like this. They offer a much larger area than the, the typical um, tape lifts or biotapes. Very easy to use. They have uh, 3.5 inches on one side and two inches on the other side. Um, you just uh, open it, you put it on your surface and then um, you close it back. Another option for tape lifts, because ooh, that's what we compared, uh, would be your um, normal you know, office tape. You put it on a surface and you send it to the lab on a glass slide if we are lucky, the lab I mean. Um, another option is a biotape. I don't know for size you can see the biotape is is a, a rigid surface that has a, um, a strip of glue on it and you just put it on the surface and you lift the particles up um, and you send it to the lab. So these were the tape lift options. Now um, for uh, wipes, this is what uh, Franco used. He said that is the one inch square. It looks like this, it's very small. You just it on a surface and you uh, send it back to the lab. And another option that Franco didn't mention because it was not part of the study, but um, is very um, useful for some instances is the uh, microvax. I lost the presentation. I'm not sure where it is. Okay, John, we'll put it back up. There we okay. go. Okay, so for micro vacuuming, you need a cassette, obviously. You have options of cassettes. You have the carpet sampler. You have the 37 millimeter cassettes. You have the 25 millimeters PCM or TM cassettes, but you do need a setup. You do need to have a pump. You need to set it up in a proper way to actually collect particles. Now, if we go to the next uh, slide, we will actually see the real samples that came to the lab. Uh, the ones on top are the forensic tape lifts, and you can see the, the distribution of particles on the surface, the alcohol prep wipe with the distribution of particles on the sample, and the one on the, on the right-hand side, the size is a little deceiving on, on the image, but is, is um, uh, kind of a micro tape, um, and the only surface that is useful in the lab is the transparent one. Whatever is on the red, we cannot analyze, and I want to stress looking by at this picture, how agglomerated the surface is. It's exhausted, that the, the glue is done. You can't lift anything else from the surface once you are at this level of um, agglomeration on the surface. Um, so these are the, the surface options that you have in respect with tape lifts 
an alcohol prep wipe. The uh, microvac is a bulk sampling. So what you get in the lab is, is loose particles that we can prep and, and um, analyze and use them for different techniques. So they are a little bit more versatile and um, uh, it, it depends on the surface that you are trying to sample. Um, if we go to the next slide, I'm just gonna start to compare and contrast these um, sampling techniques and, and show what gives you and what actually takes away from the surface and the analysis. So for microvacuuming, I'm starting with this because again, this is a bulk sample and, and usually is the best sample to work in the lab because you do not interfere with any substrate, is, is just lifted from the surface and it comes to the lab and we can work with it. Um, it's a very efficient sampling method for collecting particles from porous and uneven surfaces with medium and heavy loading. What does it mean? It means um, if you have a wood beam, for example, that is porous, is rough, and you see that they have particles within crevices, what options do you have? And you want to sample that beam. You, you have it in your sampling plan to, to include it. What options do you have to sample from that beam that you can get a representative sample from the site and the lab gets a representative sample and the results are, are something that you can work with? Can you use tape lift? Unlikely, you can get what's on the surface, but you may not be able to get what is in crevice because you don't have access. Can you use a wipe? Possibly, but the same thing, you may have some issues getting stuff out of the, the crevices. So microvacuum is a good option to go into this type of surfaces that do not give you access on a planner um, level. Um, the sample is representative as a bulk, as I mentioned. You can use a variety of uh, analytical methods to apply for analysis. You can use the light microscopy, you can use electron microscopy, you have options. You can use the TEM for soot if it's needed. Uh, it's not, as we've seen in the previous presentations, it's not an analyte of interest uh, necessarily for wildfire, but I will tell you why sometimes it's important to include this in some investigations a little later. We can perform chemical analyses on the sample if you need to go into a more evolved type of analysis, like do I wanna know the pHs that are in the sample? Do I wanna know the pH, the anions that's available? Um, but there are disadvantages because no method is perfect. None of these three uh, options are perfect. They all give you something, but they also take something away from you. Um, they have a poor efficiency for collecting from very smooth surfaces where it's a low loading, um, and it does not preserve the relative position of the particles on the original surface. Is that important? Sometimes maybe, but is it always important? Do you really need to know the particles, how they are sitting on the surface next to each other, especially if they are agglomerated? Maybe not, but that is something to keep in mind depending on the scope of the project. And um, if the sampling is aggressive, uh, the methodology may induce some damage to the brittle particles, especially the ash particles, which are really, really very hard to handle, both in the sampling and the analysis. Now, the second, the, the next slide will show the tape lifting. Again, advantages and disadvantages. It is very good if you have a smooth surface, non-porous, and a typical monolayer loading. What does that mean? If you have a very agglomerated surface and you have your 
adhesive available for sampling. And you put it on the surface, you press it a little bit. You can only take what's on the surface. If you have a heavy loading, whatever is behind stays behind. You exhausted your, your um, glue, that is nothing that you can do. Uh, so that is something to keep in mind how and when to use tape lifting. It does preserve, it's the only method that preserves the relative position of the particles on the original surface and the population per unit area, which again is important when it is important. So it, it depends on the scope of the project. You can only use optical microscopy. You may be able to use scanning electron microscopy, but you are limited on what you can do with a tape lift. Uh, disadvantage, as I said, loading uh, pore efficiency for better loaded surfaces. Uh, it shows preferential sampling from the top layer of particles. It's intuitive. That's exactly what is happening. Um, if you apply overpressure, when you try to pick up particles, you may damage again ash, you may damage some of the, the uh, char. It offers you a limited sample area. I showed the area for um, um, the biotapes, the tape lifts, that's what you get. That's the surface that you can sample from. Um, it's limited. The uh, particles part of a large agglomeration may not be correctly identified, especially when they overlap. When you have a large particle sitting on, on the tape lift and you have to put a cover slip to analyze it, the cover slip is not gonna sit properly. So everything gets a little distorted when you try to identify the particles. Um, you cannot do any chemical analysis. You cannot do the TEM. You cannot do the corrosivity when, when these are important analyses that you want to do in your, in your uh, project. Uh, now, the uh, uh, wet wiping, which is on the next slide, again, issues uh, or advantages. It is good for relative smooth uh, non-porous surfaces with low and heavy loading. You can apply a variety of methods when you need optical, electron. You can um, run the TEM if you need soot, if you found soot in the sample and you wanna know why is it there? How is it, is it really soot? You can um, apply that type of analysis. Um, we can run the chemical analysis uh, as GCMS for pHs, metals, whatever is needed for a more comprehensive project. It has a port efficiency again, for collective on porous surfaces, uneven surfaces. It definitely does not preserve the relative position of the particles on the original surface or the population per unit area. It, the same thing, it may induce damage to the brittle particles such as chart and ash. And there may be a variance in how you extract the particles from the wipe into the suspension for the analysis. So all these are, are things to take into consideration when you decide what sampling technique to use. Um, now, analytical, the options that we have in the lab on the, on the uh, next slide, um, if we move to the next slide, we will start seeing, okay, so light microscopy is the most widely used um, type of analysis for this uh, wildfires and fires in general. And it's not random, it, it makes sense. Um, there are a different type of light microscopes that can be used. They work differently and they give different type of information. One is the stereo microscopy, which is like a, a, a fancy magnifying glass. Um, and it's typically used for screening. 
uh, you get a sample in the lab and you do nothing with it. You wanna see how the particles sit on the surface. What is the relative uh, ratio between size? What type of particles do you have in the sample? So it's a screening method that is very useful to get accustomed to what to expect from the sample and how to adjust the, the, the sample um, preparation to give the right result. Now, the next slide, it shows a different type of line microscopy, which is reflected line microscopy. Again, type of a screening technique. Um, it's very useful for um, opaque particles. Um, you can distinguish uh, the metal, you can distinguish coal, uh, plastics, char is easy to see, um, ash is sometimes easy to see if it still has the integrity uh, that um, the lab would be very happy to see. Um, so it's again, a screening technique, very useful. We look at a sample by this technique before, again, we do anything with the sample. We do not modify it in any way. Um, now, the next slide shows the most commonly identification line microscopy method that is used in the lab, and that is the polarized line microscopy. And how this works, um, it identifies particles based on um, their interaction and in, in the, the optical properties when they are exposed to polarized light. And what is polarized light? Is um, light that is taken through a medium and the waves are oriented in a, only one certain way. So it, it lets the particles to give you properties that if you study them and you know what to expect, it's easy to identify. So uh, it's easy to identify char, Ash um, is difficult for any method, but uh, with the training and with the right sampling, uh, it can be uh, analyzed easily by PLM. Uh, in this picture, uh, the yellow and the um, blue particles, those are quartz. So you can see the entire constituency of the sample on that um, slide and, and what else is in the sample other than chart and ash to have an idea of how much Chad and ash would be, because this is the main method that is used to derive the concentration, either by visual air estimation or count or whatever method is applicable uh, to produce a numerical result. Now, um, on the next slide, we will see some auxiliary, well, this is another picture of the line microscopy. On the left is um, um, the, the polarized light is taken out. And then on the right is actually an agglomeration of soot that I wanted to show that if we get this in the lab, we will say, oh, it looks like soot. And we will report something that it looks like soot. But uh, we can't tell you for sure by this method alone that is only soot in the sample because we do not see the, the acinephor morphology. We don't see the size. We don't see how the particles agglomerate. We can't really tell you for sure that this is soot or not. So this method most likely used just like this for soot will overestimate. I will give you that this will be maybe 80% soot. And it may be less, but by this method alone, expect 80%. Now, on the next slide, I believe it starts with, um, yeah, the TEM is the method, transmission electron microscopy, which maybe is known to you mostly from asbestos, the expensive analysis in asbestos. Um, it's a high magnification uh, microscopy technique that actually can see particles at a, at a very low uh, size. And if we go to the next slide, I think I have pictures, and this is soot. And if we look at the size, 
the individual particles, the little round spheres that you see in the pictures are about 20 nanometers, 20 nanometers. So it's a nano particle. Uh, it tends to agglomerate in this grape-like morphology, which we define it scientifically as a cinephorm, uh, but it has a very definitive, dense, distinct way of uh, presenting itself. And that's how we identify if it's soot or if it's not soot. And if you compare with that image that I showed previously, you can't see this type of detail. But this is not as important for um, wildfires. I just added it because sometimes um, you get in a sample, a very dark sample, and the client expects a large amount of char. And it's not char, it's soot maybe. And then the entire scope is different. So if it's not char, if it's not wildfire, that it means it's a different type of contamination. That means it's not really an insurance for wildfire. So it, it's a, a little nuanced on how and where and why would you use TEM if it's useful for some more extensive examinations. Now on the next slide, it's another auxiliary method scanning electron microscopy, which also is a high magnification technique, not as high as the TEM, and it uses a different type of, of um, interaction between electrons and samples, so you get different type of images. Um, on the next slide, I believe I have a picture of char and how char looks under the SCM. So you can see the, the morphology, you can see the porous structure, you can see the size. So this is about 100 microns. You would see this by PLM, but not with as many details. And what is beautiful about SCM is that you can actually get the elemental composition in the same run. And on the left-hand side is a spectrum of the char that is shown in the image. And it only shows carbon, a high concentration of carbon. Um, and gold is not part, uh, I wish, is not part of the chart. It's just a, a, a sample preparation that we had to mm -hmm. apply. Um, for this field, for example, it's also useful to derive a concentration. How much char do you have uh, in the sample relative to other particles? And you can also determine what else the other particles are. It may be environmental dust. You may actually end up with some ash in here that is easily to see than in the PLM. On the next slide, there is another picture of wood char. But in this situation, you can still, it's the pyrolysis, the burning is more advanced. Uh, the structure is a little more brittle. It's more degraded. And if you look at the elemental composition on the right, it's not only carbon. So it started to ash already. It has uh, some silicon, it has potassium, aluminum, calcium. So it starts to degrade more and that's how we end up with ash because we were talking what's the difference between wood uh, char and ash is the degree of pyrolysis. Uh, more carbon in char and then it starts to go away by burning and you end up with ash which is mostly mineral. So on the next page is the SEM image of ash where you can still see, if you look carefully, the, the uh, structure, the vegetative structure, but it's, it's highly degraded and it's very brittle and it's not easy to, to handle it. And the elemental composition, carbon go down, goes down and silicon is high because it's a phytolith and it has aluminum, potassium, calcium. So why SEM? You don't need it really, uh, just YD. Uh, for a, a normal analysis. 
but for a more comprehensive, for comparative with sites, for example, um, it's a very, very useful technique. Um, I'm not sure what I have on the next slide. Oh, okay. So what I have here is just showing how soot looks like when you are putting it on a table lift and when you take it out of a wiper, you redeposit. Re SCM is not the best technique for, for soot, but you still can see that that wipe lets you to um, break the structures. It lets you to get closer to the morphology. So it is more indicative and more um, sufficient for identification than just keeping on the table lift and putting this in the PLM. Now, the takeaway from my presentation is this. You have options. You have options for sampling. You have options for analysis. The only thing you need to know is um, what these options give you. Uh, is, it, is it the right method for the project? Uh, you need to know the, uh, the um, trade-offs of these options. You don't need to change the objective of the project to fit the sampling. You just have to use the right sampling for the project. All right. Thank you, Dr. Mirka. Let's go to the roundup. The Roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for some final thoughts, and then we'll go around the horn and ask if there's anything each of our guests would like to add. Cliff? Thanks, Joe. I think one thing that um, I would just like to point out is, you know, when we talk about an alcohol wipe, there's more than alcohol in there. And I think that's very important. Those alcohol wipes in most situations are used to sanitize skin or whatever. So they're going to be like 62% alcohol. The rest is going to be water. And there are a lot more things that are soluble in water than are soluble in alcohol. So I think it's a good thing. There's actually two solvents, uh, you know, that are, that are working for you there. Um, a couple of questions I do have, and um, I guess number one, if we were using a uh, composite wet sample, uh, Eugenia, um, you know, what sort of training is involved in doing that? In, in doing the analysis in the lab? No, no, in, in, in doing the sampling on site. I mean, do I need a lot of specialized training in order to do this? Or does the lab give me instructions with how to do it that, that I would follow? Or if I was going to have someone like you or Franco or Joe train me to do it, how long would it take uh, to train me? Could I watch a, uh, you know, a video on, um, you know, mm -hmm. on the internet or something like that? Well, it's people know how to wipe surfaces, right? So the only thing that you need to know is how to apply on the surface and maybe uh, first select the best surface that is representative for the project, that is representative for what you're trying to find. That's something that can't really be trained from the lab. That is something that has to come with the investigator, with the knowledge. Um, then you take the wipe out um, and, you know, you just have to follow a, a certain um, format and send it to the lab. So I don't think that is a lot of training. We can definitely provide it. Um, there are many 
tutorials online how to do it. Uh, but I don't think that is an extensive training for any of these techniques, mind you. Maybe microvacuuming is a little bit more difficult because you have to put a pump together and the, the, the uh, um, tubing and everything. But for the other two, I don't think that that training is really uh, something that would be in a way of collecting the proper sample. You, you anticipated a couple of other questions. You kind of answered them all together. So um, I think what's going to happen, Joe, is I think we'll go around, but I think we're going to end up on after check because we've got a number of, uh, of text questions that I think we'll just shift over, I think, to afterthoughts. What do you think? That sounds good to me. Let's go to Franco Safe. Franco, final thoughts, anything we missed, anything you'd like to add? A couple of things here real quick that, uh, you know, these two studies that we presented today are just the, uh, you know, maybe the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's the, it's the idea behind it is to open up the conversation to what's available to do these types of investigations. Uh, there's no one way that's better for, that's, that's good for all surfaces, that's good for all types of wildfire investigations. There are three, four different techniques that can be used. Uh, as uh, Eugenia touched on, and I think Joe mentioned earlier, it's a toolbox in the, in the, uh, with, with the investigator that they, cho they should choose and be able to decide what, what the sampling method is appropriate for their project. And I hope many people in the industry will start uh, you know, doing more of these studies and maybe will have more information to better serve the, uh, the clients here and give them, uh, give them good results. All right. Thank you, Franco. Let's go to Joe Spurgeon. Dr. Joe, final thoughts? Yeah, well, not as much a final thought as a clarification. Um, Franco was good enough to uh, send me the data to analyze. I was not involved in the project planning or anything, just simply the data analysis and assessment. So I'm not really saying I endorse a sampling method, uh, as much as just analyzing the data that was available to me to look at. So that's my final thought. All right. And I, I, there is one question that came in that I'd like to kind of throw out um, because I think it gets down to the heart of, of the matter. The basic question is, why does it matter of what importance to know whether residue is char, ash, or soot? Who wants to take that one on? Franco, maybe you? It doesn't matter. Uh, in our approach, uh, you know, usually if we find 1% uh, of either char, soot, or ash in our composite sample, we recommend uh, that a property, if, if it's an interior sample, for example, we recommend that, that a property be, uh, be analyzed. And these three components are the results of, uh, of a wildfire or, or, or a fire. So when you take a sample, it's automatically... Uh, analyzed for these uh, three components, and they are indicators of uh, potential impact uh, of a property to a wildfire. We use the same uh, thing when we are doing a, uh, um, sewage uh, sampling. We don't sample for every virus and bacteria in the sewage. We choose an indicator, you know, uh, whether E. coli or, you know, uh, uh, to other indicators. And in this case, we cannot analyze for all the uh, components of the wildfire. So we choose these uh, simple indicators to tell us what, whether a property had been impacted by a wildfire. Can, can, and, I, 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 I was going to, I'm not sure whether 
uh, you thought one thing and you said another, but you said, you know, if you get 1% or more, you're going to recommend that the property be analyzed. Did you mean, okay, be clean. That's what I thought that you meant. Okay, good enough. Thank you. All right, Dr. Mirka, you want to add a final thought? Yeah, so for me, uh, just to add uh, to what Franca said, for me, uh, because of my profession, I look at the results differently in this question, why is important if it's one or the other? Because I question, if I see in the sample that is the majority of the material is ash, and in the same house, I see that another sample has more char, I'm questioning it. I'm questioning something about what happened, why the residue is not consistent. Um, So I think that's important to know which one is which and, and how much is more than the other, because it tells something about what happened. It tells something about a fire. It tells something about, is it really the deposit from the wildfire where somebody took something from, from their uh, fire pit and put it in the house? So this is how I'm looking at the results. I'm not sure how the insurance does, but me, that's why I'm looking. I, I, try, I, I tried not to go into what people uh, do sometimes, uh, you know, and uh, of course, looking at the sample results uh, many and often times and uh, Eugenia, you know that, uh, you know, we, you and I have a lot of conversations sometimes discussing a certain project, you know, finding, uh, you know, a lot of ash inside of a house uh, that's uh, 30 miles away from a wildfire and three months later, uh, you know, may tell us uh, maybe it's not, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the results here are not due to the impact from that wildfire. And we go more into analysis and finding the reasons why we're finding a lot of ash and a house that's 30 miles away three months later. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you for that clarification, of course. All right. Well, I want to thank all three of you for joining us today. Dr. Eugenia Mirica, Franco Safe, and Dr. Joe Spurgeon. This was a very interesting show. Let's continue the discussion in afterthoughts.iaqradio.com. There are some questions we did not get to in the chat. And we'll do our best to answer them in the uh, in the afterthoughts.iaqradio.com uh, room. So before we go, I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Of course, our guests, our sponsors, our growing group of audience. And I also want to mention next week, we've got a great show. We're going to talk to Mr. Uh, Terry Brennan. Brennan. We're going to talk about the life and times of, uh, I I can't figure out whether he's an IAQ legend or a building science legend. So there may be some combination of the two um, that we'll talk about uh, crowning him with next Friday at noon. So please join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.